Taiwan, Episode 2, Maya Blue, Great for Artists, Shitty for Captives. Hello, and welcome back to the Art History by Lakshmi podcast, where we explore all things art history related. I'm your host, Anu, or Lakshmi, whichever you prefer, and I'm glad you're back. If you're new here, I'm a professional artist, and I have a passion for history, linguistics, politics, and art. And because of COVID, I haven't been able to bore my friends with it in person, and so I made a podcast. A little shameless plug before we begin today, check out my paintings and prints at artlakshmi.com, that's art, L-A-K-S-H-M-I dot com, and my Instagram at art underscore by underscore Lakshmi. Today's episode is going to center on blue, specifically Maya blue. To do this, we're going to do a little time travel and go back to around 600 AD in Chechen Itza. And that's where you're shit out of luck, because you're a captive awaiting to be sacrificed to the rain god Chak. You're covered in this brilliant blue paint along with the altars, where you'll be sacrificed. Now, if you're a lover of art and history, this is a time where you appreciate the fact that the blue you're covered in is exceptional and only gave up its secrets rather recently. If you're neither, you're probably crapping in your pants right now. What's so special about this blue? Well, this specific blue is called Maya blue, and to appreciate it, we need to understand a little bit about the color blue in general. You may be thinking, Anu, I already know blue is a primary color. What more do I need to know? Well, how about it's incredibly rare in nature, like really, really rare. Making blue pigment is very difficult. The things we often see as blue aren't really blue. They don't yield blue pigment. Take, for example, a blue jay. They look blue, but if you take a feather from a blue jay and a feather from a cardinal, grind them both up, the cardinal feather will yield a red powder because it's filled with a red pigment. But the blue jay's is not filled with blue pigment, rather melanin. The ground-up feather will be brown. We see the wings as being blue because the structure of the feather matches that of the wavelength of the blue. So while all the other colors pass through the feather, the blue does not. It is reflected. What you see is a reflected wavelength of blue light. So you see, blue is kind of special. So if blue is so difficult to get, how did humans make blue pigment to paint with? Well, blue pigment can be made from indigo, crushed azurite, or lapis lazuli. Of those three, pigment extracted from lapis lazuli is the most lightfast. It does not fade as fast as crushed azurite or from indigo. It mixes beautifully with other pigments to create a range of colors, but it is also just a really beautiful, brilliant blue. Lapis has been mined in Afghanistan for more than 3,000 years, and it's been exported to all over the ancient world. Civilizations such as the Indus Valley, Iran, Mesopotamia, and Egypt all use lapis in some way or the other. But the Egyptians were like, fuck this, it's too expensive to import everything from Afghanistan, let's figure out how to make blue in another way. So they figured out how to make a synthetic blue, the first synthetic blue, around 2500 BC, and it's known ever so creatively as Egyptian blue. 
And it's done by grinding silica, lime, copper, and alkali and heating it to around 800 to 900 degrees centigrade. On a side note, because I am the queen of trivia, in ancient Rome, blue was considered the color of mourning and the color of barbarians. Julius Caesar reported that Celts and Germans put blue dye on their faces to frighten their enemies and they tinted their hair blue when they grew old. But the Romans made a lot of decoration in blue and they used indigo and the imported Egyptian blue for all of this. So we have a bunch of blues. What's the whole fuss about? Turns out the most stable blue when suspended in oils, which also has a strong tinting strength and covering power, was crushed lapis. The pigment extracted by crushing lapis is called ultramarine blue. This ultramarine blue mixes beautifully with other pigments to create a range of colors, and it's also just a really bright, beautiful, brilliant hue. Because going from lapis lazuli to ultramarine, that is to go from the stone to the ground pigment, was so incredibly expensive, and because lapis lazuli was mined almost exclusively in Afghanistan since the 6th century, blue has always been a very expensive color. During the Renaissance, and I know I'm going to get shit for the way I pronounce this, I don't care. This is how I was taught. Just like how it's vase and not vase, and zebra not zebra, I will always say Renaissance. But I digress. During the Renaissance, ultramarine blue was five times more expensive than gold. The alternatives to ultramarine blue that I had mentioned weren't as stable and faded over time and even changed colors. Raphael's Madonna and Child Enthroned with Saints uses azurite as the source of blue in the Virgin's mantle, and it has darkened over time and degraded into green malachite, and now this mantle looks greenish. For centuries, blue, true blue, which is ultramarine blue, was used for the most important subjects, like for example the Virgin Mary, and also only used by the richest and most prominent artists and patrons who could afford the use of ultramarine. So now you get the picture. Unless you are an incredibly important painter with a rich patron, you had to use substandard blues. And this is what makes Maya blue so exceptional. Maya blue was first used anywhere between the 6th and the 8th century. And it was used a lot. It was not used as sparingly as ultramarine blue. It was even used heavily in the 8th century, where it was widely used to paint murals of the classical Maya period. Maya blue remains bright and brilliant even while the other colors used concurrently have faded. It remains a beautiful blue that can withstand a lot of shit, like sunlight, high temperatures, acid rains, and it can even withstand some modern solvents. So while on one side of the pond you have really sparing uses of the incredible ultramarine blue, you have Maya blue that's used everywhere. To say that Maya blue was a mystery is an understatement because the amount of resources used to create that blue does not correlate with the amount of lapis lazuli that might have been transported. And indigo was widely available, but it's unstable. We've seen how ultramarine is the preferred pigment in Europe because it's just so much more stable than indigo. So experts were like, yeah, that's not the blue that the Maya used. They probably used a lot of different stuff, but not indigo. 
Turns out it was indigo after all, but with a twist. In the 1960s, Maya Blue finally gave up its secrets. It was obtained by mixing a rare clay polygorskite with the indigo. It involves boiling the indigo with the fibrous polygorskite to bond together molecularly, and that makes it super strong and resilient. And that's the story of Maya Blue, how it's an incredibly resilient, brilliant blue that withstands all kinds of crap thrown at it. It becomes even more incredible if you realize that even today, making a stable blue is a big fucking deal. You can still use Maya Blue in paintings today, by the way, and it's a grayish blue, and if you add a little bit of white to it, it creates this beautiful, almost turquoise, with a slight hint of green almost in there. And I hope this episode gave you a little bit of appreciation for the fact that a lot of society's advances are mirrored in our art. So if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. And if you can, please rate and comment on iTunes. Next time, we will be covering the history of another color. I haven't decided which, so stay tuned.